With that and the recognition that I can prepare all day, every day, but if God's Holy Spirit doesn't show up, there's nothing supernatural that will happen in these next few minutes, and I pray that indeed this would be a supernatural time for God's people. So let's pray. Please bow with me and let's pray. Father, first we thank you for just that small act of kindness that we just witnessed. And we lift up our sister Joy to you. And we ask that you would heal her. We ask that you would be with her. That she would sense your presence during this time of trial. And Father, for all of us, as we look at this passage where our Savior is arrested, he is betrayed, he is denied, and he comes under trial, that we would gain strength from your word, we would gain perspective for our trials, our denials, our betrayals. And so, Father, would you speak now through your word to your people in the power of the Holy Spirit. Forgive me my sins, for they are many. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In our passage, at first reading in my study this week, it seems so straightforward. It's a story that we all know, and we know it pretty well. Usually at Easter, we read this story. But I want to put a twist on it for you, and hopefully add some layers or dimensions to the story. What I mean by that is what we read mostly in John 18 is what I might would call the lower story. It's the things that are transient, the things that are temporal. It is the things that we see. That's the lower story. It's our lives on this earth. That's the lower story. But what breaks through in our text is also what I would call the upper story. So there's a lower story, and then there's this upper story. And the upper story is the spiritual story that's happening in between the lines or behind the scenes. It's taking place in the spiritual realm. And you see, like trying to hold down uh, a water balloon or a balloon underwater, it pops up every now and then, even in our text. And I'm going to show you where the upper story pops up. It's not just the lower story. And I hope you're going to be able to see that even in your own lives. To start with, though, I want to read an article that I read this week. It was published this week uh, on a Desiring God website. It is about a man named Reed Carr. He is currently serving as a missionary to Italy in a church there in Rome. And he writes, and I quote, If I could have known somehow that the Lord would call my wife, Kira, home to be with him, I would have begged him to take me instead. 
Our girls were only six, four, and two. What hope did I have of raising them alone? The thought was unthinkable. It simply didn't make sense. But as we know all too well, the Lord's ways are often not our ways. So, on August 14th, 2015, I woke up to a new reality and a new previously unthinkable world. One which did not include my precious wife to live and walk and parent alongside. <clears throat> the day prior, Kira and I were packing up and preparing to return to Rome, Italy, where we had been living, working, and serving in the evangelical church for the last six years. We had been in the state of Georgia in the U.S., visiting family, and were excited to get back home to Rome, returning to our friends and the work the Lord had called us to do. Since it was our last evening together with family, we went out to dinner and then we went elsewhere for dessert. While we enjoyed each other's company, no one could have imagined the events that were about to unfold. How that evening would conclude, no one dared to think that those would be the final words we would exchange with Kira, at least here on this earth. The ride home was pensive and quiet. I was driving, Kira was in the passenger seat, and our two youngest daughters were in car seats behind us. Our oldest daughter rode home with their grandparents. Unbeknownst to us, up ahead on the road we were traveling, a truck driver was checking his cargo, preparing to depart for West Virginia. Before leaving, he exited his truck to inspect his vehicle. In doing so, he failed to set the parking brake. Immediately, the truck began to roll down that ramp that led to the highway where we were traveling. The timing was such that the fully loaded semi entered the highway the exact moment we were passing the truck ramp, and it collided with our vehicle. The impact was tremendous. Our vehicle was pushed across the northbound lanes of traffic, the median, and then the southbound lanes of traffic before crashing against the guardrails on the far side of the road. Kira took the blunt of the impact and was killed immediately. That's a hard story. It's a hard story to read. And it's a hard story to hear. A young mother lost. Her husband and three little girls left behind. Her life cut short by a random act of forgetfulness on the part of a stranger. The natural person and the natural question might be, where was God? When this truck driver forgot and didn't check his brake before stepping out of the truck to check his load, where was God? 
Where was God when the timing of the family's car passing the intersection and the trucks crossing were timed perfectly for side impact killing the mother? Which leads to bigger questions. Is God sovereign over the random acts of man in this world? Is he in control? This is a huge, huge question for you and for me to settle in our souls before tragedy strikes and our faith is shipwrecked on the jagged rocks of uncertainty and trial. Either God is in control of human history or he's not. That's what's happening in our story today. I'm going to show you in a moment how the upper story and the lower story are playing out even in our text. But let me say this. There are really only a few possible answers to the question Where was God? You see, where was God when Judas came and kissed Peter on the cheek and betrayed him, and he had all of these soldiers come and arrest Jesus and take him and put him on trial? Where was God? There's four possible answers anytime you ask this question. Here's one. The first one is there is no God. And that's what a lot of people conclude when they see things that are hard that they don't understand. They conclude life is random and the events have no meaning. There is no God. That's how these things happen. There's not a God. The second possible solution is this. There is a God, but he is not in control. There's a God, but he's not in control. He is good. But he's not in control. I'd have to ask the question to that. Is that even a God? A God that's not in control? That doesn't help me at all to say, yeah, there's a God, but he's not in control. That's unhelpful. The third answer is there is a God in control, but he's not good. And I would tell you, this would be the most heinous, evil world possible. To have a God that is not good would be evil. So the fourth answer, and I think the answer that the Bible gives to our question, where is God, is there is a God in control and good, but we see, or we can't see the upper story with our finite minds, and therefore, we must trust. We must trust that there is more to life in this world than meets the eye, that God is doing a thousand little things in the upper story that we cannot see at any given moment. And that's what's happening in our text today. 
Where was God? This is my answer. God was reigning sovereignly from heaven on his throne. When this young mother's life was taken, he was reigning in heaven on his throne. When Jesus was carried to the cross and hung and killed for the sins of people, God was reigning on his throne because he is sovereign and he is over all things. So with that, let's look at John 18, and we're going to break it into two parts. The first part is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. We see this in John 18, 1 through 11. The second part is the trial. John 18, 12 through 27. Let's look at 18, 1 through 11. Read with me in John 18, 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Listen to that. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured, this is in the ESV, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus, if you notice observation, Jesus went where Judas would know he would be. That was a normal meeting spot for them. That's not the actions of a man trying to hide or run from trouble. He went where he knew he would be captured. Judas, it says, had procured a band of soldiers. Most commentators say this would have been no less than 600 people. I never would have guessed that reading the text. When I, when I read the text, I think, yeah, there's probably 12, 13 people, you know, they go out there and get Jesus. No, most commentators believe, given uh, Jewish and Roman history, that it was more like 600. Now, why did they do that? I think the answer is they were expecting a fight. And Jesus was actually offended that they thought he would fight. Over in Matthew's gospel, 2655, listen to how Jesus responds. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me then. So Jesus is is kind of offended that they think he's going to put up this physical rebellion, knowing that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And then look, look with me back at John 18, 4 through 6. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, you hear that? Jesus knew all that was going to happen. He came forward and he said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. 
When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Notice, though, when tragedy strikes, Jesus knows all that would happen. In other words, your Lord and Savior, if you're a follower of Christ, he's never surprised. He's never surprised when hardship comes your way. He's never surprised when you get the diagnosis you don't want. He's never surprised when there's an accident and the wife is killed. Jesus is never surprised. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. I abbreviated the beginning. I'm just going to read you what I have in my notes, but it says, God is saying in Isaiah 41, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, when tragedy strikes, we run to him. And this is significant because I believe God in the lower story is allowing things to happen that force us in the upper story to run to him, to cling to him, to hope in him. And if he doesn't do things in our lower story, like take away the things that we're hoping in and take away the things that we're trusting in, what the Bible calls idols, if he doesn't take away those things in the lower story, then the things in the upper story won't happen. And let me tell you, the things in the upper story are the eternal things. They're the things that are going to last forever. And so what's happening to me in my lower story, I've got to look to my Father in heaven and say, I don't fully get it. This hurts, but I'm going to trust. I'm going to hang on to you because you say you'll never leave me or forsake me, that you're my helper, that I don't have to fear. What can man do to me? You see, Jesus in our story could endure the betrayal, the arrest, the denial, denial, and the trial. Because he was sure, Jesus was sure, there was an upper story that was more glorious in its plan. He was sure. We must know God and seek God. Follow this now. We must know God and seek God before the storm comes. And the storm is coming in the lower story. So, you might say to me, I'm not disciplined. I have a hard time spending time with the Lord daily. I would say to you, brace yourself. Because when the storm comes, you're not going to have cultivated that relationship. You're not going to have cultivated that trust that's going to carry you in the storm. And your faith might be shipwrecked and your soul lost. 
The importance of time alone, cultivating our relationship with God, trusting Him, understanding His truth and His Word is so vitally important. But you know what screams at us in the lower story? Work, Facebook, social media, television, all of it, trying to pull you away so that you will not be ready when the storm comes. Now, look at John 18.6. This is an interesting thing, and I read right over it in my study, and I've read right over it my whole life. But I think it's really significant. John 18.6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, remember what I said about this group of people. The scriptures are saying they came with clubs, they came with swords, they came with shields, they came with lanterns, and there's 600 of them. And Jesus says, I am he, and they draw back and fall to the ground. Could you just imagine the audible sound of all that metal and people and lanterns and it all pulls back and falls to the ground in one moment? Just the audible sound of it would have been amazing much less the visual of that many people pulling back and falling in one moment. It would have been miraculous. No wonder in that moment Peter felt so brave. It's like, all right, we're winning now. I'm going to pull my sword and swat, takes that guy's ear off, you know. He, He had seen in that moment, Jesus is still in control here. I'm, I'm on the winning side. In that moment, I'm sure he felt that. But here's another thing. Why did they do that? Why did they respond this way? And this is something you wouldn't pick up unless you studied the text. The Lord said to them, I am he. The word he, it's not in the Greek. In other words, Exodus 3.14, when God identifies himself, how does he identify himself? He says, I am. If you take the word he off, which isn't there in the Greek, what Jesus said to them was, I am. And their response was to fall. Now, we don't know that they fall back like dominoes, you know, and have to turtle to get up. Or did they fall down on their face and worship? The scripture doesn't say. But we know they pulled back immediately and they fell. It's stunning. It's stunning. Christ demonstrated in that moment that he was divine, that his dominance was stunning. But yet, all he had to do was speak the word, and he could have annihilated them all. But what did he do? He went with them willingly to carry out the divine plan of redemption that had been set in place. And what I'm saying here is this, them, them falling back into the ground is like trying to hold the water bubble, the, the balloon underwater, the upper story just keeps popping up. I don't know what's popping in the... But it's not good. I'm trying not to move. 
I'm sorry. Take your jacket off. I'm looking at people that know more about sound than me. I don't know what to do here, guys. Uh, every time I touch it, the lower story is trying to take away from the upper story, isn't it? Um, all right, all right, we're making progress. I shall stand very still. And so, look with me now at John 18, 8 through 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, he says, let these men go, his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I haven't lost any. Jesus in this very moment is still being the good shepherd. He's taking care of his men, and he's also fulfilling scripture so that we will know prophecy is being fulfilled even in this moment. Even in this moment, he is being a good shepherd. And then in John 18, 11, you can see the upper story beginning to play out. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knew, I am here for this moment. And so, Peter, you're living in the moment. You're living in the lower story. There's a bigger story here. Put your sword up. I'm supposed to drink the cup the Father has given me, and I will. Now, the second part of this text is the trial of Jesus. You have Caiaphas and Annas, and they represent men whose devotion to their own religious careers, and notice I said religious careers, and the potential of the status quo exceeding their willingness to see God at work in Jesus. In other words, all this stuff is happening, but these two men are so committed to their own success, so committed to their own name, that they can't see the glory of Jesus in all that is happening. And I would say that that's what happens to us. Our commitment to our own glory, our commitment to our own name, our commitment to our own success is often the blinders that keeps us from seeing God for who he is. Even in ministry, I wished, you know, I, I knew and could see the upper story. But there are men probably standing in pulpits all over this country who, if you could really get down to it, they're more into what they're doing for their own glory than they are for the glory of God. And therefore, they're teaching a gospel that is not a true gospel. They're asking people to give them a lot of money to buy jets so they can fly around the world and doing things like that that I believe is heinous sin. And that's what these men were about. These men were about themselves. They are the bad shepherds that Jesus has talked about in John 10. And he did 
mention that. But before we get through our text, we've got to look at Peter's denial. Look with me at, at John eighteen seventeen is the first one. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And then John 18, 25 through 27, his next denial. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. You see, right here, at this very moment, the upper and lower stories collide. Jesus has told him he's going to do this prior to. Peter said, no, I'll never deny you. And right here he denies him. And if you go over into Luke, Luke says, the Lord looked at him in that moment. And then in verse 62 in Luke of chapter 22, it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He knew he had denied his Lord three times, just as he had been told. You see, in the lower story, Peter was undone. But you know what happened in the upper story? The shame eventually gave way when Jesus was resurrected to forgiveness and grace. And that gave way to this boldness to preach the gospel in Acts 2 where Peter sees 3,000 come to faith in Christ. The lower story and the upper story coming together. God using the denial, even his denial, to bring about a deeper grace. So I say to you, maybe there is this sin that is going on in your life. How might God use that if you would receive grace and receive forgiveness that it might move his kingdom forward? 2 Corinthians 4, this is in closing, 16 through 18. I think this passage in Corinthians does a great job of capturing what we're talking about. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. The outer self is the lower story. The inner self is the upper story. For this light, momentary affliction, it's momentary, in that we're going to live eternally. Whatever it is that you're experiencing in light of eternity, it's momentary. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, and there's that paradox again, how do you look at something that's unseen? 
How do you look at things that aren't seeable? For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus made it through betrayal, denial, arrest, and trial, focusing on the unseen, focusing on the eternal, the upper story. Jesus gave us a model for how to persevere in life by trusting in the Father, focusing on the eternal, not the temporal, believing his word, even when our feelings tell us it's not true. Believing his truth, even when all your life circumstances are pointing the opposite direction, you hang on by faith to the truth. You focus on what is unseen. And in closing, I read you this illustration. I have talked about this person from up here before. She's one of my heroes in the faith. She's still alive. And here it is. Here's an example of the kind of faith I'm talking about, the lower and upper story. Johnny Erickson Tata has been paralyzed and in a wheelchair for over 50 years. She broke her neck when she was 19, jumping into a lake, quadriplegic. She said that she would like to take her wheelchair to heaven. What? She's got an agenda, though. She will stand, she says, on her own two legs, in her new body, and say this to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. And I will say, Jesus, you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in the world we will have trouble because that thing has been the worst trouble ever. But the weaker I was in that wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising and the blessing of that wheelchair. How about you? Will you choose to see your life through the upper story or will you let the lower story dictate your story? Let's pray. Oh God, give us the grace to see more than we can see, to focus our eyes on what is unseen and not seen, to live in the fullness of your upper story. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.